Here we are, episode 44 of the podcast. Yep. Hello, everyone. Tonight, we're going to be talking about money. It's going to blow your mind. You're listening to the Fight for Together podcast. I have been very good and have not smoked a cigar since Thursday. Yeah. Doctor's orders. How long was this supposed to be? I don't know. I wasn't really listening, but oh. I feel like it's not time yet. Ever since okay. I got my tooth pulled. Okay, let's just get into it today because we have some important topics. But first, let's go to the mail. This is me opening up the mail <laughs> and reading a letter. Ooh, and what do we have here? A check for $25, which wow. I've already converted into cash. Awesome. May your podcast continue to be awesome and your asses more comfortable. Thank you for all you do. The Lurcies in Southern California. This that has a bunch of names, Chris, right? Chris, Faith, Alder, Elora, and Ren. You give us 25 bucks, you get every single name read. I know. That's awesome. Thank you very much. This is the money going into the chair jar. Thank you, Faith and company. And I think Faith even has a question at the end. Wow. That we'll answer <laughs> today mm-hmm. because we can be bought for $25 <laughs> or less even. <laughs> Okay, tonight we're going to be talking about money. Money is a topic I love talking about. I don't know why, but I do. It's the topic of a book that I'm in the process of writing, although that book is currently stalled out, but it will see the light of day. And I don't like talking about, like, hacks and credit card points and 401ks. But then every once in a while, I come across someone who has like just a different way that they're seeing money altogether. So, oh wait, oh we have to talk about Patreon. We'll do that later. Um, and I was watching this video that is on this channel. Um, this guy's channel. I'm, well, I'll post all this below. But the guy's channel. His name is Matt Diavella. And he's like a minimalist, and he is hosting the main speaker that you're going to hear, the voice of the audio clips, is this guy named Ramit Sethi. And he wrote a book called I Will Teach You to Be Rich, um, which, of course, like sounds gimmicky, but either it's gimmicky or it's true. And I think there's a lot of truth to what he says. Mm-hmm. So I'm anxious to just like get into this. Because I feel like the American problem that we're in, financially speaking, is something that probably like requires a bit more than just little tweaks, like 5% here and 8% there. I feel like the way that we're seeing money and goals and possessions is wrong, or at least not helpful when it comes to our finances. And so, you know debt and dissatisfaction i think you find a lot of just people who are stuck like they can't it's like they're in quicksand and they can't get out so before we get started we're gonna hear a message from the sponsorship thing and now we are going to get into it by listening to the first clip. Okay, so these are all those. You want to just start with the first one, Cammy? Mm-hmm. Tell you to cut back on lattes. Buy as many lattes as you want. This is a fundamental misconception that if you cut back on three or five dollars every single day, that somehow magically two hundred thousand years in the future, you're going to have enough money to live your rich life. First of all, who wants to live like that? Second of all, if you run the math, that's not even that much money anyway. $3 a day. And third, it simply doesn't work. People buy more coffee than ever. I wake up in the morning, I want coffee. What 
they ignore is that you can focus on five or 10 big wins in life. Get a good job, negotiate your salary. Invest every single month automatically. Make sure you have a solid credit score. Just get a five to 10 things right. You'll never have to worry about the cost of appetizers or lattes again. Are they so that's an interesting take. Mm -hmm. And I don't fully agree with that. So what he's basically saying is there's these bigger fish to fry, financially thinking, uh, speaking, and people, they're all focusing on the latte, the like luxury item that you can't afford. And he says it's like not that big of a deal. It challenged me. Well, he said that at the end of the day, you're actually not saving that much money for the cost of going without or something without without the things you love which which i kind of agree with but i also think that there's a systemic problem where it actually really does add up a bunch like i heard this number 752 <clears throat> i think that's the number so if you have a $4 latte, if you buy something once a week, it's a $4 latte. And if you multiply it by 752, I'm just pulling my calculator up. It's, I think that's the number. You'll get the idea either way. $4 times 752, is that what I said? Mm -hmm. You get $3,008, okay? $3,008 is the amount that you would spend on one latte a week over the course of 10 years when you take into account interest, paid on credit card, and loss of investment if you were to take that money and invest it somewhere else. So it's a $3,000 decision. Maybe that's not that much in the grand scheme of things. It'll... I think where it adds up is if you have like a bunch of these things. Which I think there are usually. Well, I I know I'm not supposed to jump ahead, but he, he has another point that I feel like balances this point out. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Okay, let's get to that then. Okay. Are there some sacrifices that need to be made though? Because sure, while I love lattes, I love going out for a cup of coffee every day and I don't want to sacrifice that, can I apply that to everything in life? Can I have it all? So I, I would love for people to develop their sense of what they truly love and what they don't really care about. In my life, um, I love convenience. That's something that I call my money dial. I can turn that spending way up. So when you think about convenience for most people, maybe they have a dishwasher, um, maybe they send their laundry to be done or they have somebody maybe come and help around the house once in a while. I turned it way up. I doubled, tripled, quadrupled my spending. I have a personal assistant. Um, I wake up in the morning, my calendar's like perfectly organized. It's like my art, I love it. But my computer's five years old. I just don't care about it. When I bought a car, I bought a Honda Accord. Again, don't really care about that. Um, there, when I, we hardly ever eat out as a couple. We just make food at home. For a lot of people, if you ask them, what do you truly love spending on? There tend to be some clusters. Wellness is one, and that could be organic meat. It could be training. It could be going on a retreat to Tulum, whatever. Um, food, classic one. Uh, relationships is a big one. So the point I'm making is, ask yourself, what is the thing that I love? And what if I doubled my spending on it? Well, in order to do that, which would give you joy, you probably have to cut back on the things you don't really care about. And instead of just spending a little bit here and a little bit there, I'm a huge fan of going all in on one big thing and then saying, these things are just not important. I love that point. Yeah, so I think this point balances out the first, whereas like, let's say you just absolutely love lattes. Well, double down on the lattes and maybe get rid of something else that you don't care as much about. But I don't even know. I'd have to sit down. I don't even really know what that would be for me. Although Bug I... Bug spray. <laughs> Vacuum cleaners. Okay. Yes, you know. <laughs> Thank yeah, you. cigars. Yes. Uh, what do I not care about? <laughs> I mean, unless you're not Everything done. else. <laughs> Yeah, I care about a clean house. Yeah, you would you would spend on like house cleaning. Yeah, I'd want someone to deep clean for me once a week because I I don't I don't like deep clean necessarily, but I like a clean house. 
But this point is yeah. so important that it's like spend heavy on the things you care about and yeah. then cut, you know, he says his computer is five years old and he drives a piece of junk car. I have a feeling a lot of people spend a lot of money like on cars and just shit that they don't even care about. That's what's kind of tragic about it. It's just kind of like handed to them and, and it's a cultural norm. So they don't know how to say no. Now, I, I say you guys because I think this is actually something we're very good at. Um, specifically me. I've been told, like you guys have heard of um, Purpose Driven Life, just the name of that book. Some guy told me like, oh, you make that guy's life look haphazard because I'm like so intentional about every decision, especially financially, <laughs> which has pros and cons. But either way, this is an area that I, I think I am really good at or at least I take really seriously. I'll spend like crazy on something I care about. I mean, there's a pair of shoes that I want that are $300 and I feel guilty about it kind of, which we'll get into later on in the episode, but I like them. And then I'll like go without air conditioning for like the air conditioning on my car. I mean, I'm driving a 95 degree heat today, sweating my yeah, balls off. That's stupid. <laughs> to you. <laughs> to me. But I have no problem enduring that because it's not a value to me. Hmm. So, you know, how does a couple out there or a family start implementing this? Well, where you could start is by writing down five things that are important to you as a couple or partnership or family unit or whatever it is. I mean, you could do it on your own, too. Which we haven't done this. Well, I mean, not no, officially. No, but I think we do it more naturally. Mm-hmm. First of all, I mean, I, I guess there's the question of who should do this. And the the person that I think should do this is the person that's not accomplishing their goals. They're frustrated because they feel like they need more money mm-hmm. to accomplish their goals, which I feel like we're accomplishing every single one of our goals right now. Um, or if yeah. we're not, at least I'm not blaming money. Like, mm-hmm. my books aren't getting done, but that's just me. <laughs> I can't blame money on that. Yeah. I mean, there's a lot of frustrations I have, but I don't think money's the problem. So for people out there that are saying, oh, if I only had enough dollars, then I could vacation, learn guitar, spend more time with blah, 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 whatever that is, I think that's who this exercise is for. Mm-hmm. So then write down the top five things that you value as a couple and like you have to if you're sharing finances Wait, so you're doing individual and then you're doing no, just, just a couple you could do it individually too i guess but i'm assuming if you're sharing finances then well there may be some overlap but it probably really varies from couple to couple of course it does mm-hmm. but you have to agree on where the money's going that's all i'm saying <laughs> Yeah, good luck with that. I don't know. I think well, can't you have suggestion? well, can't you have like each person write down their five things and then they come together and say, okay, how can we compromise? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Okay. Have, okay, ten things, whatever you want. But the point is, if if it's shared money, you're gonna have to agree on where you're probably spending the money. I don't care if it's yeah, yeah, you are. I'm just saying, pick something. Unless yeah, mm-hmm. exactly. But the point is that you're kind of saying, hey, let's invest in these areas, which then by definition, you should probably start cutting other areas that aren't in those top five or 10 things. Yeah, right. Or start budgeting more for at least those things, Mm -hmm. whether it be vacations or, you know comfort or adventure experiences or you know relationships or whatever Mm -hmm. i mean i just think like one of the things that this is why i'm so frustrated with like generally like advertising is as humans we only have the ability to say no to so many things but we're absolutely bombarded by advertising in this day and age it kind of is a, a sabotage then for unless you're just purposeful of like needing to not watch certain advertisements because it doesn't really matter how good you are 
as far as saying no, like eventually it's going to get to you. Like, I think it's just how like we're wired probably. Yeah. You can only say no so many times. Yeah. Um, so it's kind of, it's all, it's going to become, it's going to sabotage like a lot of your goals if you're constantly looking at advertisement. But there's these stats, like the average American is exposed to, you know, like hundreds or thousands of impressions of ads a day from billboards to right. online. Some, a lot of the stuff you can't control if like you've got to drive somewhere. Yeah. Yeah. So your but the point is your money is going to those places. Hmm of what you're being exposed to, even if you're driving past restaurants or you get a subscription or you get Amazon Prime. That's creepy, man. That's creepy to think about. So you have all these, this money just hemorrhaging out to all over the place mm -hmm. because even if you say no to 95% of the advertising, if you said even yes to 1% or 5% of it, you're still probably spending most of your money. Hmm. And it's not going to your top 5 or 10 things. Yeah. All right half the battle is really getting congruent with yourself and saying, what do I want? Maybe I need to dream bigger on some of this stuff because I've been playing small, but some of this stuff I just don't care about, so I'm gonna get rid of it. When it comes to money, so many of us dream small and we play small. So we spend our time debating about lattes. We worry about a small amount of debt. But when was the last time we actually lived a life of imagination where we said, hey, what if I had $25,000, what would I do with it? And if you have never even thought about that for five seconds, then how are you ever gonna know what's exciting to you with money? And that's why most of us dread money. We don't wanna talk about it. It's always something that at the end of the month we look at our bills, oh God, I guess I spent that much. I wanna flip that because I will teach you to be Um, why is a kid rolling? Hey, can you stop rolling on the thing, please? Um, what'd you think of that? I'm trying to think if I've ever stopped to think what would I do with 25 grand? <laughs> well, we did the Appalachian Trail. I mean, I feel like you think about it, so then I don't think about it. But what if I thought about it? Would it be different? A lot of it would probably be the same, and then some of it might be different. I think there are certain like personality types that are more likely to dream or to, th to imagine those types of possibilities. And there's others that more thrive off of natural structure. Yeah. But I don't even think of, I, I think I, yeah, dream and fantasize, but with money, I don't dream and fantasize with money. Yeah. But his point is if you, are not dreaming or fantasizing, then you're probably going to spend the rest of your life more or less just like catching up mm -hmm. or buying status quo type objects, which is pretty boring at the end of the day. Yeah. So at some point, mm -hmm. I mean, this is like a pretty, this is just a common psychological tool in entrepreneurial world. You know, they say work on your business, not in your business. Like you actually have to, if you're an entrepreneur, you have to step back and the best entrepreneurs, they don't just like work more hours baking the cakes. They actually step back and they look at the system that creates the cakes and they tweak the system itself. And for us with families and finances, you know, there's so much going on with kids and diapers and sports and interpersonal issues. And then of course, marriage that with finances, it's easy just to never think about the big picture. You're always just like paying bills and, you know, buying your daily and weekly shit. Mm -hmm. But I think it's really valuable every once in a while to step back and say, what do I really want? Like, do I want to just be grinding it out forever? Yeah. Or like what do I want the next year to look like or five years to look like or 10 years, you know? Cause I think if you start thinking about the future in that way, it actually causes you to wake up a little bit and say like, okay, if I just keep doing what I'm doing, the future is just gonna look the same as the present. Yeah. Or what if you didn't have to work? What if you had a million dollars? What would you do? And right. whatever your answer is to that, 
why don't you start investing in that? Even just time wise, like even, yeah, I just think there's so many, uh, cop outs that we give ourselves and and ways that we self-sabotage ourselves because we're afraid to step out. So it's kind of, and I'm even speaking to myself, like, even if you have all the money, then, then all of a sudden you're like, oh, actually I'm, I'm actually just afraid (laughs) to do this. Yeah. We're going to get out of that. What about somebody who might say, like, Ramit, that's easy for you to say. I'm working two jobs. I'm $30,000 in debt. I've got car payments, all this. Uh, It's hard for me to even imagine a world where I can get out of debt, let alone pay my bills. Like, how, how do those people, the ones that are struggling the most, live a rich life and get out of debt and set themselves up to be financially free? I'd ask them one question. What's your debt payoff date? Almost nobody knows. I get these emails every single day. They're like in small amounts of debt or huge amounts of debt. And I always say the same thing. What is your debt payoff date? What that means is what is the exact month that your debt is going to be paid off? If you know that answer, you're in really good shape. Even if it's 5, 10, 15 years from now. Because it means you have a plan and you're automatically paying it off. But of course, the vast majority of people don't. They live under a cloud that's, I'm in debt, I have... Some of them think that it's existential and they have $3,000 of debt. I'm like, you could pay that off in a couple of months. It's not that big of a deal or maybe six months. Some of them have significant amounts of debt. But the commonality is if you just have this dull, throbbing pain in the back of your head, oh, debt, suddenly you start to identify yourself like that. You follow people on Twitter who are de- who are like write these really depressing things about macro economy and there's no way millennials are ever going to get out of debt. You read subreddits where they think that they talk about everyone being in debt. And worst of all, you don't make a plan. What I want people to do is go to a debt payoff calculator. You can Google it. Put in your amounts. You'd be surprised that probably 80% of the people I know who are in debt don't even know how much they owe. So step one, find out how much you owe. Step two, plug it into a calculator. You might discover that paying an extra 20 bucks or 50 bucks a month can cut that down by years. And then three, once you have a plan, it's like, you have a big sigh of relief. Now, if you want to take an extra job or you want to negotiate your rates or you want to do X, Y, Z, you can affect that plan. But until you actually have a plan, you're just, just sitting here like, oh, this is really depressing. And that is the worst place to be. Man, I love that clip. Mm-hmm. That's good. Yeah, to be able to not just, I think it's, he makes a really good point of debt just becomes your identity. And then, but then when you ask these simple questions of, I think they're hard though, it's hard to face it, but when are you going to pay this off? Figure it out. Figure out how much you owe. Figure out when you're going to pay it off. And then be, and then having that plan. I mean, I just think of just in general for my day. When I have a plan for my day, I feel so much better about my, li- about my day. So I can't imagine what it's like if you have all this debt and you don't have a plan for it. Yeah, well, there's so much power. And he says, you know, give a date. But I think there's also power in naming a number. But, you know, we talk a lot on this podcast. Well, actually, I don't know if we do, but I wish we did more. But in our life, on our vlog especially, we talk a lot about the power of the weekly schedule. Because there's something to say about uh, I value family. Yeah, but. Or exercise. Where's the time for? Like, yeah. Put the time in. It's another in. thing altogether mm-hmm. to say we're running a marathon on September 22nd. Mm-hmm. And that means I have to run Monday, Wednesday, and Friday mm-hmm. for six miles or something. That's something that actually gets something done. Saying, I want to be fit doesn't get anything done. Right. Or saying, I, I wish I was out of debt. It's like a want you have or a wish, but that's about as far as that goes. So that, hang on. Hey, can you stop pounding on the ground, please? <laughs> um, so saying that, uh, you know, that number 
even if it's a long ways off, it, it kind of like demystifies it, you know? Yeah. I, it kind of like makes it real. And he, he it's so funny. He uses that word existential. People mm-hmm. will like, they'll yeah. leave that three grand and they'll be like, think it's like who they actually are. Yeah. When it's like, no, this is just like, it's not magic. Or that like someone, like a being or a person's like literally holding it over their head. Yeah. <clears throat> um, and the irony of that is it, it's absolutely paralyzing when it comes to making a plan. Mm-hmm. Like that type of fixation. You feel so powerless. Yeah. So I think his plan like really can really empower someone if they take it seriously. What was his plan? To figure out how much you owe. And then once you figure out how much you owe, plug it into this like deck calculator or something i've never heard of that but and then that will help show you like when do you want to pay this off basically or when can you pay this off i think that starts this whole other snowball of then you realize oh if i increase the debt that's going to change the date yeah it, it would it actually incentivize you to not increase the debt at that point if yeah. you can Whereas if you just have this massive amount or what feels like a massive amount, where's the incentive? I mean, it's, it's like, all... It's you might all as well just throw some more on it. It's so the abstract. Mound, yeah, of debt. So, yeah, I'm a huge fan of... We've highly, highly prioritized staying out of debt. Um, and we celebrated, I think it was this last winter, being out of debt for seven years of any type, including mortgages mm-hmm. and things. Yeah, And that was something that we worked really hard at and we're extremely fortunate. I'm not going to just attribute it to hard work, but I will say it wasn't actually just money. There was actually a mindset shift we had where we had to like, instead of just getting in more and more debt with the more money we had, we had to just say, no, we're going to like consider ground zero our cutoff point. <laughs> like that's where we're not going to spend anymore. Not at 80% loan to value ratio or something like that. Um, so that's not something we've dealt with specifically, but it's not just about getting out of debt. This is actually true. I think of all values where, you know, I keep on using this example because it's one of our biggest, most complicated accomplishments. But when we did the Appalachian trail, we talked about it for 15 years and then we put on the calendar and put on the calendar made it real made it happen yeah (laughs) it it did make it happen Mm -hmm. and a lot of these things that we put on the calendar it even comes from our tuesday morning business meetings where you and i go off it's almost like you speak it into existence you know when you put it on the calendar it's it's like doing that most of our business meeting is just with a calendar in front of us Mm -hmm. and it's just saying okay great these are things we say we care about what day is it going to happen or should we take it off the calendar do we not care about it but there was this pastor i heard say this thing 15 years ago he said if you don't if you care about it it happens once a week and the inverse if you if it doesn't happen once a week you don't care about it and that was really helpful for me for some reason just to say that Mm mm-hmm yeah all right, next clip. You were eight years old with your parents. And so in this book, I show these crazy money messages that we absorb from society. And some of them are good, and some of them are bad. And some of them are just appropriate for the time, but we're in a new place. My parents were immigrants. They came here, they needed to save money. And that made perfect sense. I still retain some of that frugality now. But I've also turned the chapter in my financial life. So now I don't want to be living the life of what I was learning at eight years old. I want to be rewriting my financial story now. So I add. That's the last clip. And I like that because he talks about just that we're all given this kind of financial story that we're bought into. And growing up in a religious world, there is high, high, high emphasis on not spending. on just being frugal as hell all the time. There was, like, never an appropriate time to spend. I don't feel like I grew up in that type of environment. I think, <laughs> I actually think that's something that my my parents did 
well or something where I didn't become like super. I thought it's bad to be a cheapskate, but why? I like. I mean, we just. I we just bought like whatever we wanted. <laughs> you did, but I think I've also heard at least your parents they like they would, work their asses off. Well, they get, do that, but then your mom the especially would kind of like. She would talk about how she would like justify everything. Mm. Yeah, because they needed to be justified. Because they were pastors, so like they had to withhold a certain image of like dress well, but not too well. Yeah, you were the brand name, but you got on sale. (laughs) Right, that's true. But the point of this is, is just when you understand your story. That was something I overcame a lot was, you know, I came from this mindset. Part of it was my personality. Like, I'm a conservationist, and I value efficiency highly. You would have done really well in the Depression. I would have. But I also had this spiritual background that, that validated not spending. So I was basically like a hoarder. I was just, like, saving up money like crazy, and I never, I felt guilty for spending all the time. And I didn't really know consciously at that time how to walk out of that story. I think I've succeeded now. Like, I don't feel bad for most of my spending. There's still a little bit, those those $300 Adidas shoes that I want. But I'm like, uh. But part of that's like, I'm, I'm not quite sure that's the decision I want to make. Mm-hmm. Um, I could be... Uh... A week's worth of AC. <laughs> I know. I'll give up a week's worth of AC, no problem. I'll give up a year's worth of AC for that. Yeah, not me. <laughs> um, but I think there's power in recognizing that you, we all probably have a story of some sort that we're told about money and that we believe. And maybe it wasn't wrong. Maybe it was helpful to a certain point, but it's no longer helpful. Mm-hmm. And yeah, he had like three categories. Something that, like, was super helpful um, that you can carry on into your life that helps you. Something that was maybe harmful to the way you saw money. And it, and then something that just was neither harmful nor nor good, but it's just outdated. Like, it, it's not helpful to you no longer, any longer. Those were, like, the three. Yeah. Hmm. So I hope that's helpful for you guys. I'm going to put the link to the full YouTube video. It's 35 minutes long, and then there's like an extended version if you're like a supporter. And we just listened to the 35-minute version. And in fact, shout out to doing crap with your kids. We listened to this entire thing with our kids, all of them. And they were really like smart, and they understood it, and they, I mean at least they all had things afterwards where they were talking about it and they were saying like, Oh, that really, I don't know. That resonated with me. So, mm-hmm. you know, you might want to consider that, but every Sunday at 10 AM, we like watch some sort of video or listen to some sort of teaching that we listen to together for an hour. And then we talk about it. And this is the one we did this last Sunday. Mm-hmm. Yep. Okie dokie. Well, now that you mention it, it is time for, for the news. news. Ooh, I like how you did that. With <laughs> Acting like a co-host more and more every day. Okay, this is from the University of Rochester. There's this headline that says, Teenagers' ability to describe negative emotions protects against depression. Okay, so there's a study out that teenagers who can describe their negative emotions in precise and nuanced ways are better protected against depression than their peers who can't. Adolescents who use more granular terms such as I feel annoyed or I feel frustrated or I feel ashamed, instead of simply saying I feel bad, are better protected against developing increased depressive symptoms after experiencing a stressful life event according to the study. Those who score low on negative emotion differentiation 
tend to describe their feelings in more general terms, such as bad or upset. As a result, they are less able to benefit from useful lessons encoded in their negative emotions, um, which help them regulate how they feel. Hmm. So then this is what I really, I mean, part of me to this is like, well, okay, it's cool to see that research, but then it's like, no, duh. Like, is this really that shocking? Well, I think it is to a culture that has largely dismissed or numbed our feelings. Like you are kind of taught that at a young age. I mean, at a young age, I think in a lot of way that parenting is, when a child is frustrated, you you try to just be like, cut it out. Or you just try to numb them like, okay, let's, let's, and I'm guilty of this. Like, okay, I don't, your frustration is making me uncomfortable. So let's divert you real quick, you know. Or you dismiss it. You say something like, oh, you're tired. Yeah. Like everything goes in the tired category. It's like maybe they're not tired. Maybe they're pissed off. Maybe they're like, annoyed. Maybe they're. Today, I, I, I'm pretty proud of Rainier. Like he he knows how to say this he just comes and he's like i'm frustrated <laughs> and i'm like and today i was able to just kind of sit sit with that with him and not just try to fix it but just be like that's okay it's okay for you to be frustrated i don't need to shut you up or numb you or distract you like let's just sit in this for a little bit and actually he's okay sitting in it it's me that <laughs> Well, so this is what the second half of this article says, and this is why this is important. Emotions convey a lot of information. It says, depression ranks among the most challenging public health problems worldwide and is the most prevalent mental disorder. Hmm. But, she says, the person who does a study, basically you need to know how you feel in order to change the way you feel. So this isn't just about like, oh, let's all sit in a hippie circle and share. But the first step to dealing with disappointment or frustration or annoyance or shame is to first of all acknowledge that it's even there. If you can't acknowledge that it's there, you specifically you don't stand a chance. You specifically name it. You're able to do that, and then it points. Probably then it's a marker that shows where it's coming from. Then you yeah might ask why am i annoyed mm -hmm. every time i'm around this person or in this scenario yeah and you can look for patterns and right. i think i think males have this extra difficult in our culture mm -hmm. you know how when we were on the at with culligan he'd be like the only acceptable male emotions are rage and i forget what the other one was <laughs> i think it was just rage basically <laughs> rage <laughs> but it and i think he was mostly joking but there's a truth to that where, mm -hmm. you know, to as a man say, I'm disappointed, I felt like, you know, I must be gay or I couldn't be a man and have feelings mm -hmm. um, because I never was a, around men that processed emotion. Mm -hmm. But then, of course, we wonder why we're addicted to everything because we can't cope with who our feelings or I guess, according to the study, depression is skyrocketing. Mm -hmm. So I just thought that was kind of cool. Yeah, that is. Next article. Okay, former news anchor sues the news station for $10 million over pay inequality. I was at the top of my game, she says. Okay, this one's a tricky one. I want to hear what you think about this. So this is in San Diego. Uh, the woman was the face of KUSI. And she's suing her former employer for $10 million in reparations. And she said she found out the difference in pay didn't have anything to do with the difference in work, experience, or performance. It had everything to do with the fact that I'm a woman. And she thinks that for fighting for equal pay that it cost her her job, which by reading this article, I think that would be difficult to prove. Um, but I wouldn't be surprised if they're linked. So... For the 10 years that she co-anchored the station's most popular time slot, this lady claims her male counterparts were paid significantly more than she was for the exact same job. 
which is a violation of California's Equal Pay Act. I was doing the exact same job as my male co-anchor performing the same duties, and he was getting paid 40% more than I was, she says, adding that over the course of the decade, the pay gap would probably add up to about $1 million. Um, and although she knew that she might not be getting paid fairly, her suspicions were confirmed in 2017 after her former manager informed her that her male counterpart was taking home at least $90,000 more than her every year. Shit. So she went to the manager, she filed oh. a complaint, um, and the manager didn't respond favorably according to her, and then she was let go, saying that her email had attitude and she kind of sucked and other things, but that's not really the point. Oh. <clears throat> So what do you think about this? Because I actually have two different takes on this. Totally opposite. One is I'm like, suck it up. You, I just have a hard time suing someone for money when you agree to do a job for a certain price. Did, Which, did she? I mean. Yeah, she did. Well. She was getting paid for 10 years. Right, but there's ra- raises in there, I'm assuming that maybe she wasn't getting or the the male counterparts were getting more of well, a raise. Of course now she's it's coming out that male counterparts may have got more money. But the point is she agreed to work for a certain amount. And she agreed to that and she got paid that. Yeah. But I think sometimes it takes a while to know what you're worth. Like in a system of I think oppression to women like that for years, she probably didn't. And I'm, I know I'm speculating, but I'm just kind of going with, with my gut here. She might've not even known what she was worth. No one knows what they're worth. I mean, and then, and then she got older and she got wiser. And then, so maybe I guess to your point, does that mean she should sue them? I don't know. Yeah. If every, I mean, I was a boss of 40 employees and they all got paid different amounts based upon what they negotiated with me. Men, women, didn't really yeah. matter. It was it was based on negotiation power and exactly what you're saying, what they view as their, how much they valued themselves. Right. And this organization probably took advantage of that with her because she probably didn't value, I, again, I'm speculating, but perhaps didn't value herself as much as the men did because of the society well, that she grew up in. I think that could be a factor. Yeah. But I don't think it's the only factor. Um, but my point is, she agreed to it for ten years, and if Homeboy's getting paid ninety k more, she's in, she's already in the top like one percent. Yeah, but she could be trying to make a point and fight a fight a battle for more than just herself. Well, of course she I is. Mean, yeah, but at what cost? I mean, so according to what you're kind of saying, can anyone that was quote unquote taken advantage of? I mean, you agreed to work for $9 an hour in high school, but now you're like, shit, I should have been worth 12 Like, because oh, other people got paid 12 mm-hmm. or whatever, right, like eight right. years ago or five years ago. Can you yeah. go back and say, you should have paid me 12 when you agreed to 9 Hmm. Well, I, I, it didn't seem like she was trying to, I mean, she was trying to talk to them first, and then they just like, fired her ass which was like oh okay if that's how you want to treat me after i've been there for 10 years i mean i can imagine the kind of emotion that that produces i mean you give your life for 10 years to this company and then yeah but that's like that's america i know it's I know. not all just... women oppression some of it might be and I'm, i don't know what is and what's not yeah okay but i mean like so many people if they go to their boss and they're like i want a 40 percent raise they'd be like fuck you you're fired yeah. You know, if they if they demanded it. And that's what she kind of did. Yeah. She didn't ask for it. She didn't say she was worth it. She didn't, like, appeal to, well, I don't, according to this article. Um, mm-hmm. So now I'm not saying it's fair, like, yeah. in a way. I think there's all sorts of inequalities out there. Probably the sex one is the bigger. Race and sex, I think, are the two. Well, I guess. Having not been a victim of those personally yeah. that I know of. Mm-hmm. I can't speak to those as much, but I know, like I said, I knew we would pay some people double because that's what 
that's how much it cost us to get them to stay. And that's therefore, yeah. in a way, that's how much they were worth to us. So there's also like market forces. So I don't know if she can prove that it was like just because she was a woman. Maybe she's a shitty negotiator. Maybe. Yeah, and like you to your point, the company could could have been just uh, just taking cues with what she valued in herself, and then therefore just going with that. Whereas maybe some of these other men, um, they kind of had more bigger egos, so they knew they had to buy them more in order to keep them to stay. I mean, this is just yeah, kind of what I'm I don't thinking. Know. Like, but. You know, and, and there is California law, like legality. Yeah, here, so I wonder maybe, how many states have that. I have no idea how many states have that. I don't know either. Probably not but maybe, Kentucky. you know, maybe she'll get money. And I'm not against it. Yeah. I just think, I, you know, because the same thing is happening with Tifu. He's like, um, oh, he's the number one Fortnite player in the world. And he's suing FaZe Clan. This was like oh, huge right. in like gamer industry news. And he signed this contract to like give FaZe Clan all this money, and then he went on to become the best Fortnite player in the world, or at least the most profitable, mm. and now he wants out of the contract. Mm. And he's saying the contract is corrupt. And I'm like, okay, like mm. maybe, but you signed it. So there could be this, uh, there's probably a lot of factors, right? But there could be a factor where your ego gets bigger than the contract, and then you want to go back and say, well, the contract is the problem when... Maybe actually your ego is kind of part of the problem. I don't know. Yeah, well, at the end of the day, like what's fair is what people agree to in, yeah. in a way, mm-hmm. you know? And I think I think it's great when you, as a course of action, mm-hmm. when you inform and educate women and say, hey, you're worth more than this. Start mm-hmm. asking for more money. Right. Go to bat for yourself, Right. you know? And if you're worth it, you'll get paid it, I think. Mm-hmm. Uh, maybe not always, but the capitalist market is bent that way. And sometimes it takes like organization and, you know, um, you know, working in larger groups and numbers. But to retroactively say that wasn't fair when you signed up for it, it, I don't know. I don't like that. Yeah. It just makes me wonder how much was hidden from her, though. Well, salary is a commonly hid- hidden thing. A lot of people in top jobs, they don't, they don't disclose their salary amounts. Hmm. But yeah, it's a sticky issue either way. I don't know. All right, ready for another one? Yep. Last article. San Francisco will spend $600,000 to erase history. The school board has voted to destroy public murals by a New Deal era communist. Okay, so this guy, Victor, a Russian immigrant, um, made these paintings that are in a high school, and he was the most important muralist in the Bay Area during the Depression. The Bay Area. Is that California? Or yes. where? Okay. Like San Francisco. Okay. So he was a communist. Though. Okay. Like, I don't know why we care about that, but we were supposed to, I guess. Um, and he did this mural that depicts George Washington and his, or George Washington's slaves picking cotton in the fields of Mount Vernon and a group of colonizers walking past the corpse of a Native American. And this has been there for, you know, since the Depression. So what is that, 70 years or so? Wait. The colonizers. So it's kind of saying a message. Like it's trying to show, like, all the different, like, inequalities going on. Yeah, kind of. Well, it was showing that George Washington, although he founded this country, he actually still had slaves. Yeah, it wasn't, well, it wasn't, all the top dogs did. It wasn't pro-slavery, but it was just telling history, telling history and pointing out this kind of weird discrepancy in a way. Okay, so just because he's a communist? Well, he's, they're saying that at the time high school history, this is why he painted this, at the time high school history classes typically ignored the incongruity that Washington and others among the nation's founders subscribed to the declaration that all men are created equal and yet owned other human beings right Um, all white men are created equal so now though they are saying that the chief concern is that the kids are mentally and emotionally feeling safe at their schools 
and they talked about concealing the murals, but they're saying, no, this would allow for the possibility of them to be uncovered in the future. Wait, why are kids not feeling safe? That's what's kind of weird, is when they actually interviewed the students, none of them really cared. Does someone have an agenda here? That's what I kind of feel like is going on, because they're they're saying... The reason why they're saying they're destroying them, they're saying this is reparations. As if they're paying um, someone back, but I'm like, hmm. who are they paying back? Sounds like a cool mural. I mean, if it's you know depicting the inequalities of. The so time. they're kind of saying like, well, how far could this go? And so this is from the article: If K through twelve schools start to provide top-down total perfect protection from the emotional pain of confronting uncomfortable ideas like what actually happened in real American history, we should not be at all surprised when these people go to college campuses and then in the workforce and demand the same sort of comforts, safe spaces, trigger warnings, microaggression, microaggression prevention, and so on. Well, man, you erase history and I mean, history already repeats itself, but you erase it. even more gonna do that probably now i'm not a fan of erasing history yeah um, that seems and the the most the best example i can give you is the tattoos on my body i got my first tattoo the day i turned 18 almost 22 years ago and it's a pile of crap it's not an idea i believe in at all i don't like it but i won't get it covered up because it tells my story yeah and it tells my story honestly and accurately mm-hmm. and that story is a part of who i am and where I've come from, and it happened. Yeah. And I feel like if I can't accept that part of myself, if I have to cover it up or change it or ignore it, then I'm, you know, I feel like there's just a problem with trying to rewrite history or ignore it instead of to have an idea that's big enough that it can include your past self. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So... Yeah, I don't know, though. I, I don't really care what happens at school, personally. <laughs> just seems a shame to erase art like that. Yeah, that that's a little weird. All right. Well, it is now time for the phone calls. Hi, guys. Faith again from L.A., uh, my question is about um, your hopes and dreams for your children and their futures. I wondered specifically if you had any sort of hopes and dreams or ideals in mind when it comes to who your kids might marry and what your relationship might look like with their future families. I have young kids myself. Um, only young kids at this point, but I often think about the future and kind of what that might look like. So I was curious with you guys having older teenagers, if that's feeling more real or if that's something you think about very much. Thanks for taking my question. Thanks for the $25. (laughs) Hmm. Well, I think I used to think a lot more about okay they're gonna get married and then they're gonna have kids and then that's just the way it's gonna be now I have opened up just my I think expectations of them not getting married uh, maybe not having kids and I mean, I think if all of them didn't get married and have kids, didn't have kids, and I didn't have any grandkids at all, I'd be sad about that. Um, but I also don't feel this this uh, intense need anymore that I think actually was more fueled from my religious views back in the day to have their life look like my life where get married get married young have kids have kid young kids young have a lot of kids like 
I think that'd be great if they want to do that, but I am pretty, I think I'm totally okay with, like, I, I want them to choose what's good for them. And all that family legacy stuff, I think it was maybe a form of self-validation for us that we did a good job. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I don't really have many hopes and dreams in the that realm anymore. I mean... Really, my only hope and dream is that I'm mature enough and humble enough to be able to not unnecessarily prevent relationship with them. That if I need to apologize, I can apologize. If I need to grow and learn, I can grow and learn. And they can still choose separation, but I don't want like my pride or ignorance or something to be what is like that stumbling block or barrier. And then, yeah, I just don't, I think I used to have more ideas about what I wanted from them. And now I don't even, if none of them got married, I don't know. I I don't even know. It'd be nice if they did, but I don't know if I'd how disappointed I'd be if they didn't anymore. I mean, I guess it's hard to know until you're there, yeah. <laughs> too, what it's going to feel like. Hello, Ben and Cammie. This is Kelsey again. Um, I would, had another question about your um, podcast, episode 40, about um, the things you learned in therapy about listening to your kids. Um Ben, early on in the podcast, you had said, what if instead of listening to, or instead of telling your kids what to do, um, we're supposed to empower them to make decisions that they're going to be happy with at the end of their life. And I want to know how that um, relates to what you teach your kids about God and Jesus and religion in general, because I grew up in the Baptist church. Uh, that's what my parents chose to, you know, to believe in and the church that they chose to go to. And I, as an adult now, came away from it very, um, um, I have a lot of resentment towards organized religion in general because of that. And I'm hesitant to um, bring my children to church. I've got four kids, ages six to two months. And... So I'm just, I'm wondering how, again, that what you had said in the podcast, what if, what, instead of telling our kids what to do, we're supposed to empower them to make their own decisions that they're happy with at the end of their life. Like, I don't want my kids to have the same feelings I did about religion now, um, now that I'm grown. I mean, I still believe that there's God, there, there's this higher power out there, but I don't want to bring my kids to a church that's going to make them feel the way I did and yeah so I'm really interested in hearing what you guys have to say about that thanks again wow I like that question yeah um so I'll answer that um Kelsey's question was how do you how does religion fit into that goal of instead of telling kids what to do or how to think empowering kids to make decisions that they don't regret and what is the role of a parent then well yeah i guess the question i would ask you kelsey given your background you said you don't like your upbringing in regards to the church i would want to know what don't what about it didn't you like because churches can be fine places like they have good potlucks um not usually like good music or good Art. but potlucks they have good potlucks <laughs> and um and some good teachings maybe um and good people like you can meet people so it's important though to look at i think the experience that you had and be able to say this is what happened and this is the part that i don't like and that becomes a really important process it was an important process for us otherwise we end up like creating this almost like existential problem the church is the problem and then we leave it, or we think we're leaving it, 
but we carry with us that same problem. We recreate it somewhere else. So I'll tell you what I like, um, what I want to give my kids, and what we picked up in church that we don't want to pass on. But to me, it's not about church or not. It actually can follow you anywhere. Is like, I want to give our kids information, you know, to share with them the stories in my life that are impactful for me about love, and it could be about Jesus or God, or it could be about other things, uh, various forms of information and stories, so that they can have access to my story and the way I see the world, basically. All aspects of it, not just the positive things, by the way. Now, what I don't want to give them, and this is what I feel like the church actually specializes in, is things like fear, coercion, and manipulation. And they want you to pray a certain prayer, and whether you believe this or not, you're told that you need to say you believe it. I mean, at least reading between the lines, because everyone else is saying they believe it, and no one's struggling with it on the outside. And those, I don't like fear, coercion, or manipulation as teaching mechanisms for my children anywhere. And those are present in the church, but they're not just present in the church. They're present all over the place. Um, so that's, that's my beef. One of my beefs with the church is I don't like those teaching tools for me or my kids. Um, so we don't, yeah, we don't do church because that was the primary methodology in our experience. Um, and I'm sure there's possible exceptions, but. Yeah, one thing I'd like to add is uh, I read in this book recently that children are actually born spiritual, meaning they're not just blank slates that you can just tell all the stuff to and you have to tell all the stuff to, otherwise they're just going to be lost um, in their spirituality, they actually like kids, like studies shown that kids actually ask these existential questions and spiritual questions. They're even in grown, growing up in quote unquote secular homes. I thought that was fascinating to think about because I don't think I grew up believing that. I think I grew up believing that if you were fortunate enough to grow up in a Christian home, great, because then you're set. <laughs> but if you were unfortunate enough to not, then you're damned to hell, you know, <laughs> or you're completely lost. And now I'm not, I don't see things quite that black or white. All right. Um, that's it for today. Hope this was helpful for you guys. Um, talking about finances and news and whatever. <laughs> Um, we have an announcement this week, which is we are doubling down on our Patreon page, which we have kind of abandoned for a long time, and now we're rejuvenating it. And what it means is this. For $5 a month, you will get access. We First of all, we appreciate it because it funds not just the chairs, but our equipment and a little bit of our time uh, for the vlog and for the podcast. And we are trying to raise money. And if you donate $5 a month, you will get access to our members-only Q&A that will come out on the vlog channel. Um, and I'm excited about this because I really like Q&As. And we did a whole vlog episode on this. So if you want to learn more, you can watch that over there. But... Basically, this will allow us to raise funds and it will allow us to connect with the people that want to support our work the most directly, which are the people that we really want to invest our time into, into listening and reaching and connecting with specifically. So these Q&As are going to be directed at answering the questions and giving the direct content to those people that are willing to pay for it. And one of the ways we know who values it is who's willing to pay for it. And if you donate $10 a month, you will be on our content team, which means our production team, I think it's called, where basically monthly we're going to vote on ideas for the topics that we cover. 
at least in the vlog and possibly in the podcast, although we haven't thought about that yet. But we're always open to suggestions mm-hmm. um, for topics. Um, so I wanted to let you guys know about that. The link is in the description below, but we would be honored if you would at least consider that. Um, or if you want to contribute to the chair fund, we have a Venmo and a PayPal account. You're welcome to do that. And um, for phone messages, Faith and Kelsey have been bailing you guys' asses out, and they have a few backlog messages, which I shouldn't even tell you because some of you guys <laughs> are going to take that as an excuse to sit on your asses and not leave a message. But you can leave a message at 206 206- six five one five seven four four it really uh we like it because we would prefer to be interactive and um that's great feedback yeah all right that's all i want to talk about all right good night thank you for listening to fight for together we'll see you next time